Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. You've got Brett Mitchell here today, and joining me is Associate Professor Holly Seal. G'day, Holly. G'day. Now, Holly is an Associate Professor, and uh, she's a social scientist at the School of uh, Population Health at the University of New South Wales uh, here in Australia. And uh, she's worked for many years uh, undertaking social science research to improve the confidence and engagement of at-risk groups, particularly around immunisation and other prevention strategies. So, um, Holly, I guess it's a it's a probably a question to start with: the role of social scientists in infection prevention. Could you just tell us a little bit about what you do and what value you see for social scientists in this area? Yeah, thanks, Brett. And um, hi, everybody. It's lovely to be able to join the podcast today. So as Brett said, I am a social scientist. So I actually have a background in epidemiology. I did a PhD focused on the epidemiology of cytomegalovirus, of all things, um, in <laughs> Australia. And and kind of really thought, I, you know, I'd follow the, the lead of, of looking, crunching numbers and, and trying to look at trends in, in different diseases, but kind of get to the, got to the point that feeling that I wasn't seeing the whole picture and really kind of getting the sense that, you know, if I wanted to dig down deeper into kind of what was, you know, kind of the factors underlying these trends, but also to look at, you know, what elements would support uh, and improve acceptance of different infection control and infectious disease prevention strategies, that really I needed to shift tact. And this was then to, to kind of really start to, to focus more on the social scientists. So this is really looking at, you know, the elements that, uh, you know, yeah, are either impacting on people's willingness to accept a different um, strategy or an intervention or policy uh, and, and to really use those kind of understanding of the different social and behavioural factors to try and align interventions to make sure that they are more effective and, and to really enhance people's um, willingness to, to accept them because they then are really targeted at what we need. And, and that work is, I do that work in the community, and I've also been doing that work in our clinical settings because it's just as important to, to look at, you know, how do we strengthen, uh, you know, willingness and, and acceptance of using strategies such as masks, mm. even in non-pandemic situations, because we know that they play a role um, in reducing risk to staff and, and to patients in clinical settings. So that's really my kind of interest in background. That is very, very interesting indeed. And, uh, and Holly is also the scientific chair for the Australasian College for Infection Prevention and Control Conference this year in Sydney. I'll just get a plug in there. Uh, hopefully, for those international people listening, welcome to come to Australia. Our borders are now open and uh, and hopefully see you in Sydney. So it'd be very interesting to see the flavour of that conference too with, with, with Holly's leadership on that. So Holly, one of the things that you're, many aspects that you just talked about, but, but one thing in particular, um, I guess, in recent years has been um, this sort of concept of vaccine hesitancy and your involvement in in that space. Um, COVID, influenza before that, and certainly other uh, infectious diseases as well. So this term, um, vaccine hesitancy, could you just sort of tell us about um, what that means? Because uh, we hear it, hear it banded a lot, and we sort of hear this, you know, anti-vaxxers versus vaccine hesitancy, and there's a big difference, isn't there? 
there is certainly so look lots of concepts there and and firstly it's important to note the vaccine hesitancy isn't a new concept you know certainly we've had people hesitant to vaccines all the way back to you know when we were looking at Edward Jenner and the, and the development of the smallpox vaccine you know we've seen this kind of history of people being uncertain or reluctant to receive a vaccine because of different concerns and, and that is really the, the crux of it it is not willing to take up a vaccine even if a product is available and so we talk about vaccine hesitancy on a spectrum we have situations where we will have parents or adults and even healthcare workers let's not get us wrong mm. where they may be selective on which vaccines they will be willing to take so you may have so a parent who is happy to get their child vaccinated for say meningococcal but may then turn around and say well I don't think I need to get the child vaccinated for varicella. So that is where they are really kind of balancing out the, the needs and the benefits, perhaps perceptions around safety and effectiveness, uh, and then making those selective decisions on, on whether or not to, to get the child mm -hmm. vaccinated. And so when we look at kind of hesitancy, certainly we understand within our community that there are uh, you know, the, the vast majority of people who will go out there and get every vac recommended vaccine without even, you know, blinking an eye, and they mm. will probably advocate for vaccination too. So that is the mm. bulk of our community. A smaller proportion of people will selectively choose which vaccines they want. And so this is for, uh, you know, as I said, the example of a parent, but even in a clinical setting, I've had many, many healthcare workers say to me, I don't need the flu vaccine because I'm fit and well. Mm -hmm. So they are making this decision, even though a vaccine is freely available to them, highly accessible via their workplace, they've made that decision based on their perception of risk and mm -hmm. severity. They will make up a smaller proportion. And then right at the tip of this kind of pyramid of hesitancy, we will have those people who decline all vaccines. And that is because of a range of factors, maybe uh, religious or philosophical elements. Mm -hmm. It may be uh, that they prefer to have the child live kind of with natural remedies to, to different health. You know, they may actually forego any sort of um, Western medicine or, or drugs um, in, in preference to, to other natural remedies. And so they represent in in Australia here about one to two percent of parents. Again, very, very small. Now, right, right, right at that tip are people who, now you was, use the word anti-vaxxers. Yes, I was going to ask you, do you, do you use that word? No, I don't I use that word. <laughs> no, I try not to because it actually has a stigma associated yeah. with it. And we're trying to to break that down because, of course, we want to keep the, the doors open to people to switch between categories. And But we do have this little tip of the pyramid and they are a very small amount of people who will actually purposely go out there and put out disinformation about vaccines uh, and so they will try and and actually promote people not to get vaccinated and in most cases it's because of uh you know wrong information conspiracy mm -hmm. theories and so forth so just uh, just on that sort of spectrum uh, just for a moment i know we're going to really mm -hmm. talk about that because it is a tip of the iceberg and not the point of the the, the chat today but for people out there who might come across uh, that rare person who comes up with a conspiracy theory uh, or 
um, misinformation. Do you, do you feel it's better to challenge that or do you think that it's not worth the time and to really concentrate the bulk of our efforts on the providing the right information support for the, uh, the hesitant group, I guess, for one of a better mm. word. Yeah, look, I think it is a bit of both. You know, certainly a lot of our efforts are in supporting those who agree to vaccinate and, and wanting to get them vaccinated in a timely way. But, you know, we we, we do need to also focus efforts on uh, reducing misinformation and disinformation out there in our community. And so, uh, you know, I think we probably can all say during this COVID pandemic that we've come across either a family member or a friend who has held some sort of misinformation uh, around the COVID vaccines and or, or may have been quite vocal in their thoughts um, about the, the the need for the vaccine. And, and certainly, you know, I've been hearing lots of stories about people saying, you know, that they they have been talking to family members and they've been feeling frustrated and, and they're just not getting any any headway with the family member. Um, you know, and so I do say to that person, you know, well done for giving that a shot. That's excellent. You know, all you can do now is just keep that door open to a conversation. And, mm. you know, even I've been, we've been going into this with a, with a friend of mine backwards and forwards. They send me uh, tweets and, you know, so-called websites with information about the vaccine that they've done in their research. And, mm. and I then try to break that down using what I call the kind of sandwich of truth. Um, mm -hmm. And this is a great analogy and I can yeah. post the, the details like up, yeah. but um, yeah, it's about kind of um, trying to debunk the myth using literally a sandwich approach. So two mm -hmm. pieces of bread and, and our filling mm -hmm. in the middle, our bread pieces are the facts. So Yep. Whether or not it's something like uh, the COVID vaccines can change your DNA. Well, you know, you yeah. would start with your two facts and then you would use that filling in the middle to, to work through with the person why the vaccines can't change your DNA. Mm. And, and, and you know, that that's a nice kind of, you know, you can bring a, the, the thought of a hamburger or a sandwich to your mind and think about kind of how to, how to unpack that. But mm. it's not easy. And, you know, we've got healthcare workers out there who are also, you know, unfortunately spreading misinformation um, or have wrong, inaccurate information about these vaccines. And, and that's really challenging. Yeah, um, and yeah. they are having an influence on others. So I, I guess, you know, we've seen through COVID, but also other infectious disease campaigns or where vaccinations being really critical. Um, the need to reach culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and also to really have communication and information that's tailored for not just you know blue or white collar caucasian workers and and so i, I guess in your experience I, I suspect i'm gonna know the answer to this but but do we need to do more in that space and and what do you see as the really important strategies to try and move this forward so that we're a bit more inclusive with some of our communication styles and approaches yeah, the challenge here, Brett, is we knew about this issue even before going into COVID. So <laughs> we had actually mapped um, the information uh, that was available about vaccination here in Australia uh, and looked at it in terms of uh, readability, health literacy scores, accessibility, and of course found that it was just not appropriate to all of the different community members that we are trying to reach. Mm -hmm. And that story has been um, replicated again during COVID 
pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really, you know, has made headline news um, where we've seen, you know, inappropriate translations of materials and, and you know, res- resources that have been put out that are not, uh, you know, in either the, the correct languages or not in at the correct health literacy levels, but also more importantly than that, just not being distributed via the correct channels and mm-hmm. you know too much reliance on on mass media too much reliance on the six o'clock news as opposed to uh you know understanding the the channels where information you know may be more appropriate to be spread via whatsapp groups or via um community radio or newspapers and and again this is issue issue isn't just about our communities because we know within our clinical settings that we have got staff members who come with a range of backgrounds with a range of um you know experiences and, and also a range of um health literacy levels so they used to say about 60 percent of the community has low health literacy levels so has is is in is unable to navigate and negotiate the kind of information that they need to to make a decision around immunization so that would certainly mean that within our health hospitals and health workforces that we have those staff who are receiving information that is just um at the at the wrong reading level or mm. just you know not translated potentially for them mm. or not being delivered in a way that they would trust. Yeah. And so we, we we use one brush stroke to put out all of our information. And we have yeah. done this for many, many years in our clinical settings where we assume that everybody will, will be able to navigate the information that we put out mm. as opposed to really kind of understanding the makeup of our workforce and, you know, appreciating that we need need to have a range of resources delivered in a range of ways to try and 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 meet the needs and and also Mm. especially critical in in aged care yeah absolutely now we could probably talk a lot more about that and we maybe we'll have to get you back another time to do that you you throughout the sort of last couple of years you've been involved in in lots of ways in the COVID response and and done a great job trying to advocate for those things we've just talked about um, and I know that you've also been involved in, I guess, for want of a better word, um, sort of trying to feel the pulse of or the temperature of what the community is um, feeling about um, their response to, are they going to have the vaccine in terms of COVID vaccine or not? And I, I wonder now, just what's your sense of, of where the community is at with COVID and vaccination in terms of boosters? But also, um, you know, we're about to go into in Australia a flu season, and um, you know, the Northern Hemisphere will only be uh, just coming out of theirs, but but won't be long before they're thinking about influenza again. And, and so, I guess it's about, and, and I know that not everybody in the community is going to have an influenza vaccine compared to to say COVID, but but I do wonder what's the feel that you're getting from the community about vaccinations more generally, and do you think we're going to see some problems with with influenza uptake um, in a few months' time? Yeah, good question, Brad. And, and interestingly, I got asked this by someone in the media yesterday. And I, you know, I said to them, well, you know, has anyone collected data recently? You know, what mm. what data sources have we got to draw on? And and this has really been a challenge here in Australia, uh, you know, and compared to, to other settings, you know, the UK, Germany and other some of the other European countries where they've been collecting this data every fortnight mm. and, you know, putting it back out there in terms of not just vaccine coverage, but 
about those kind of thinking feeling elements around vaccination and so i can only speculate Hmm. you know i am not too surprised that the booster rates are what they are you know we've we've got currently a backdrop of you know the kind of removal of restrictions happening we've got um you know uh senior ministers kind of speaking about fatigue and about Mm. the fact that we can move forward with this you know and this is then juxtaposed to raising rising COVID numbers again and so it is quite a confusing space Uh, you know certainly in conversations you probably have with people within your known network you know there are lots of people who have COVID right now and so that is also then I suppose confusing the situation around well I've had it you know what's the point of my booster Mm. Um, or should I just try and you know have a you know get close to someone and get it done now just catch it and and have it done with there's been some of those covid parties isn't there (laughs) the amount of people who keep saying that to me and i and we have to keep talking about severe cases and severe outcomes we don't know that's right we don't know the long-term effects we don't we don't and that's um you know and that i think then is is something that we maybe need to have some community conversations about again that you know we do have this real issue of of long covid happening that we know that covid cases can be on a spectrum uh, and certainly we've seen severe cases and 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 deaths even within young people so mm. you know that is that balance out but you know i think it certainly you know people are wondering where is all this going you know why mm. am i having my booster now when maybe would it be better for me to hold off a little bit and have it later down the track and and try and um spread those vaccine doses mm. you know are they just going to need you know, is the government just going to need me to come back in 12 months' time and have another oh, dose? Wrong, I think yeah. that is a real concern for people at the moment about, you know, what does the future hold with these vaccines? And, you know, once we get a clearer picture around, you know, are we going to see the COVID and the flu vaccines combined? Mm. And there might be some... There might be some uh perceptions about risk associated with that just so how we've seen uh, perceptions about that with other vaccines that have mixed or having at the same time yeah certainly we'll need to get some some strong safety data Mm. out there at the same time as promoting that because even in australia you know we say oh we do really well with flu vaccine yes we do really well but in our over 60s uh 65 year age groups in our people aged 18 to 65, um, we'd be lucky to vaccinate for flu about 20% of them every year. Uh, Mm. We do a little bit better in adults with chronic health conditions who are under age 65. But again, you know, we're talking 30%. So we actually don't have a great track record of vaccinating for flu. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you Holly about um, vaccine hesitancy and, and, and vaccines more generally and the role of social scientists we've had just a bit of an internet connection issue so we will have to call it there and unfortunately we don't get to say goodbye to Holly but Holly thanks very much and um, thank you to all our listeners for listening into the latest edition of Infection Control Matters remember that you can catch us on your um, favourite podcast provider Spotify, Google and Deezer and many more you could also follow myself at One Health AU or Martin Kiernan on on Twitter, and we always uh, provide the latest updates. Or you can follow us via our website at Infection Control Matters. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, to talking to you all again soon. Bye from me. <laughs>